You are listening to Masters Decoded podcast series. I'm your host and the chief decoder, Anis Merchant. Through this podcast, I bring in guests who are successful in a different walk of life to decode and map out their careers and journeys with the hope that we gain all our learnings. The world around us is changing exponentially and how the impact of artificial intelligence, technology, and other socioeconomic factors have either influenced or enhanced my guest careers. In today's episode, I have invited Kaihan Krippendorf, a world-renowned expert in the topic of innovation. Kaihan is a member of a prestigious Thinkers 50 Radar Group, a global selection of the top 30 management thinkers in the world to look out for. Kaihan also founded the OutThinker Strategy Network, a community comprised of strategy executives from the world's top Fortune 100 and private companies that keeps him ahead of the pace of disruption and up to date on trends, threats, and opportunities across industries. Amidst his dizzy schedule of keynote speeches, consulting projects, ongoing research, and writing, Kaihan still finds time to teach at business schools throughout the US and internationally. Kaihan began his career with McKinsey & Company before founding the growth strategy and innovation consulting firm. His growth strategies and innovations have generated over $2.5 billion in revenue from many of the world's most recognized companies. A best-selling author of five books, most recently the Edison Award nominated Driving Innovation from Within, a guide for internal entrepreneurs. Without much further ado, if you want to get dazzled with the world of innovation, Listen in. Hi, Kehan. Welcome to Masters Decoded podcast series. Thanks for taking time out. Thanks for being for for having me. It's great to be here. Kehan, a lot of things have changed in the last six months. And one of the key topics of discussion for many large organizations is strategy. And you've been talking about strategy and innovation for the last, I would say, two decades now, close to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you were one of the first few who almost wrote, you wrote a book on innovation uh, and outthinking competition way back in 2004. If I look back mm-hmm. in the history, uh, how do you think strategy then and strategy now in the last six months has evolved for you? And wow. For okay. Yep. All right. So, so, so I got three things to say. One is um, I, I view strategy as a, an evolution of different uh, language or language tools. And if we go back to when strategy was first coined as a term, um, it was it was originally a term, a Greek term used to describe the uh, political actor, the the a politician who wasn't responsible for getting on the battlefield and fighting, uh, but was responsible for raising the money to attack or defend. Uh, mm-hmm. And then Sun Tzu. He writes The Art of War later. That gets taken by Napoleon. Napoleon then applies it into his version of strategy. Strategy then becomes about um, cycles. It becomes, in, in the 1920s, really about understanding economic cycles and timing. Uh, and then it becomes about, um, uh, anyway, I won't go through the whole whole thing, but you know, the, 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 the idea of strategy has evolved over time. Uh, Peter Drucker said strategy is about knowing what business you're in and what business you should be, be in. In the 1980s, <clears throat> Michael Porter introduces to us to the term of competitive advantage before the 1980s, which is only 
you know, like a few decades ago, we were not even talking about competitive advantage, which is like shocking to me. Clayton Christensen says disruption. So it has evolved over time. And I think that in recent uh, decades, what we have seen is the evolution you could characterize this as in three different phases. <coughs> Excuse me. There was the phase of strategy about beating the competition. Mm -hmm. That was Jack Welch. That was Bill Gates. Then went into the age of we're still in and kind of leaving the age of it is about customer centricity. I think that's driven significantly by, by Jeff Bezos and Amazon being Earth's most customer-centric or um, company. And I think we're now moving into strategies about the people, um, activating, enabling your employees to be effective uh, strategists or you know, be, be, you know, fully realize their potential. Um, and I think that um, what has uh, changed in the last six months because of COVID has really been just an acceleration of key trends that are changing how strategy is done, how business is done, mostly around digitization, mostly around virtual models, around um, delivering digital value rather than physical value, platform business models rather than um, hub and spoke models. Um, so anyway, there's a, like a long answer, but um, you know, I, I, I think I think that that what we, we we should really look at it across both the longer term trends since 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 uh, 3000 BC. The near-term trends from uh, com competition to customer to employee, and then the near-term trends in terms of digital business models and digitization. I was watching one of your TEDx, and it was a very interesting thing which you mentioned in that, and it was pretty impressive. It was about a lady challenged you about innovation, and to answer her, and you were talking about employees and how employees play a critical role in strategy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the last six months has also shown that executives do not drive innovation. It's the employees. Yeah. Uh, and you do talk about that. Like, you know, the phones would have not been invented if it wasn't for the employees or the Internet line or a lot of those things. How do you beat that in thought process in executives whom you drive or you focus on strategy and innovation from them because that's critical yeah 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 i think that um I, I think that most executives get it that um it is not sustainable at a scale for them to be the ones that come up with the innovations and the ideas that what they need to do is create the context for others to come up with the innovations and ideas there's a one of my favorite phrases from lao tzu um, and I'm not going to get this exactly right, but, you know, the leader, you know, uh, anyway, it, it, a great leader is one where it happens and the people say we did it ourselves. So it's really about creating the context for people to innovate. And I think most people recognize that, that, you know, uh, Apple's big ideas didn't come from Steve Jobs. They often came from someone pushing him and pushing him. We got to launch the iPad. We got to launch the iPad. No, nobody wants another e-reader. We got to launch the iPad. And then finally convincing him to do it, right? Um, the um, Igbar Kampra, the, the CEO founder of Ikea or the, or the founder of Ikea, you know, he, the idea that really broke through was the flat pack box, which changed the way that furniture was sold and distributed. That wasn't created until 10 years after Ikea launched when an employee was trying to get a chair, a table in the back of someone's um, uh, car and they, car. they couldn't fit in so they took the, they couldn't they, they took the, the legs off you know um 
Jeff Bezos talks about this one story he talks about all the time was you know when they were in the early days every week they would uh, get all the packages and they were packing things and they were on the floor moving these packages around and he said you know we should get knee pads since we're on the floor and one of the programmers you know because in that time small company like everyone did everything he looked at him like he was an idiot and he said no what we need is we need packing tables and they got packing tables and they like increased productivity by 40% so great leaders know the ideas come from the people and their job is to create the context for those people to see seize and seize the seize those opportunities very interesting thoughts and uh, that's how you got the book out out think the competition or what motivated you to bring that book out yeah so out think the competition was really about the the individual the, the mind the person whether that is the leader or the individual how do you come up with a disruptive idea what i call a fourth option and then my next book driving innovation within was really what happens next if you come up with that idea um going back to what you said before that most innovations that most impact the society have not come from entrepreneurs but come from employees 70% of them what happens then for those 70% who come up with the idea and they are an employee mm-hmm. um we have lots of stories of them quit, quitting their job and starting companies those are just the stories those are really the exceptions rather than the rules and so the uh, driving innovation within is what does it take for as an employee to take an innovation and successfully build adoption for it within your organization so it makes that out into the market And so I interviewed 150 internal innovators and kind of asked them what their barriers were and kind of came up with a set of seven barriers and tools to overcome those barriers. Hmm. But to drive innovation, organizations and executives have to be ready to take risks because it inherently brings risk also. There is an often saying culture eats strategy for breakfast but risk inertia eats and destroys culture also in many ways. So how do you take risk and innovation because they both go hand in hand you know they always say it's okay we fail but we learned uh, but that's also showing you can take risk and you're allowed to take risk within the organization yeah now i think if we if we go to risk i think the way that humans relate to risk is very complicated mm-hmm. and um one thing that companies can do to uh circumvent this risk aversion is to basically lower the risk by lowering the investment increasing the ROI not by focusing on innovations that have a big R big revenue opportunity um but rather by reducing the denominator of ROI and making lower investments so that's all these frugal innovations where you invest a little with the potential to get a lot sequence your investments so that you are taking small risks early. You know, so anyway, agile prototyping, building the MVP, all that stuff. Um the other thing is to change what unit of measure you use when you assess risk. Mm-hmm. Going back to Jeff Bezos, he says if you have a 1 in 10 chance of 100 times payoff, you got to take that bet every time. But you need to be ready to lose 9 times out of 10. So what does that mean? If you look at each individual potential opportunity it's only got a 10% chance but if we are willing to take 10 bets we can guarantee a 10 times payoff mhm 
So it's, it's, it's just like when you invest in the stock market, right? You don't just invest in one stock, you invest in a portfolio of stocks. So the, the, the thing is that most of most companies, um, because they are designed to manage established businesses, they use the business as the unit of measure. And then they apply that to the future businesses. And when you do that, the risk appears to be very high. But instead, if you apply it to a portfolio of businesses, and maybe define it not as a business, but as a problem, mm-hmm. solving some market problem with many different tries, then you have a really much higher success rate. So there are some interesting things you can do to kind of trick the company, if you will, to perceive risk differently. And just these last 10 minutes and talking about innovation and strategy and innovation, uh, and how does strategy and innovation play? It just shows the amount of research and depth you've had and in the last decades. And talking more about you, you mentioned one thing, com- employees leaving companies to become entrepreneurs. And let's talk about you in that form of a statement. You started your career way back in 90s and uh, you left a very big, one of the big four companies when you started your own book. And the way you started, because I've seen one of your interviews, you didn't start to become an entrepreneur. You basically left the job and you started doing a lot of talks and conversations to promote your book, not with the intention to start a company, which was OutThinker. Uh, that's what you mentioned in one of your interviews. So how did that idea of the company and the book kind of, the book became a big lever for you to start your company as well? Uh, what was that experience of starting your own company? I can still remember the moment when I completely left my job. And for the first time ever, I wasn't either in school or didn't have a paycheck coming. It was so scary. Okay. What led me to that, the seeds for that were actually laid many years before. It took me seven years to write and publish my first book. So, you know, after seven years, I had finished my book and I went to my firm. I was working at McKinsey at the time and I wanted to do something with the book. I thought maybe we could incorporate it into um, a practice or I could incorporate it to my work at the firm because other McKinsey people had written books. Um, But what I learned was that those books are firm books. They are uh, supported by and crafted carefully by the internal you know, communications, you know, uh, groups and things like that. And so they weren't going to let me do anything with my book there. So I really had this choice. I had like, I was, I was, I was off to a career that I really was enjoying. And I had mm-hmm. also spent seven years getting to this point. I didn't know if I was going to write another book. So my, my plan was not to leave McKinsey. It was not to start a firm. It was really to do all I could to seize that moment because I didn't know it was going to happen again when I had a new book. So I really didn't know mm-hmm. what I was doing, but I just quit, okay. started doing things that I thought could promote the book and get the book into more people's hands. That led eventually to several iterations of a firm that now is my firm, OutThinker. And talking about the first book taking seven years, you launched four after that. Yes, uh, yes. And one of them is my favorite from a title perspective. Uh-huh. Uh, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, 
but how did these how much time did these four books take the new four books and you released the latest one too so out of the four yeah so how long my latest those take? you know it's uh, you know i think it it takes between three and five years per book i guess wow um now my second book was easier because it was basically a refresh of my first book so a new publisher agreed to publish my second book but as a condition of that they wanted to write they wanted to publish a refreshed version of my first book and um and my first publisher agreed to that so um that took me less time because basically i had the whole structure and i i rewrote about half of it but i didn't have to do a, a lot of research you know but mm -hmm. my 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 process is usually i pick a topic and then i spend several years reading about it interviewing people taking interview notes classifying them and putting them into a framework and then i spend about a year sitting down and putting together the prose and putting it into uh you know one document if you will hmm. my next book the book i'm working on now i want to do much more quickly so i'm going to find okay. a uh, a different approach and when do you have a target to set uh to launch that we want to launch it in um w w within the next nine months wow. i'm, I'm co-authoring it with someone so something i also haven't done before okay um so hopefully that allows us to also move more quickly and uh let's talk about this one of my favorite title book is hide a dagger behind a smile uh, it's so interesting title and i'm sure anybody who looks at that book will want to pick it up and read it at least that's what comes to my mind uh why that title what's in that book you know share a little bit perspective on that i i, I honestly struggled a little bit with that title okay. and and some of my customers some of my clients didn't like the title but the author okay. wanted to, i mean the, the publisher wanted to call it that um so basically um my first two books and my doctorate work is based on an ancient set of Chinese metaphors called the 36 stratagems written mm -hmm. sometime between 500 BC and 500 AD during that period Sun Tzu was born lived and died so it kind of predates and postdates them it would be kind of like if somebody took all of the phrases of a of a of a of a, of a culture right like if 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 in india you took the upanishads and um uh um oh my gosh who am i thinking of um who's that you know we're we're shiva and the big war between um where is that the upanishads anyway if you if you took if you took all the great things or if you or in the united states if you took benjamin franklin and franklin. took abraham lincoln and took all their phrases and put them into a into a book this took a thousand years for people to compile these 36 phrases and through oral tradition these stories were told and retold each time they were synthesized shortened combined with other stories until somebody we don't know who around 500 AD wrote down these 30 this this book of 36 stratagems what they're called and mm -hmm. the stratagems sound like um uh lure the tiger down from the mountain lure the mm -hmm. enemy onto the roof then take away the ladder uh, embrace what's own borrow a corpse from the soul's return um uh, await the exhausted enemy at your ease besiege way to rescue Dao. Uh, and one of those phrases is hide a dagger behind a smile hmm. and the principle behind that is your enemy 
is less likely to defend themselves or question you if they perceive that you are uh, on their side, if you're looking to help them. So you want to smile and not show your dagger until it's the opportune moment to do so. And the, the authors loved, of all of them, they loved that one the most. It was kind of the most visually um, descriptive. And so, um, so that's, so that's what they, that's what they chose to, to, to title the book. You mentioned about your doctorate and uh, why doctorate in innovation? Uh, that's such a vast topic uh, also in many ways. Uh, and it's not just innovation, but you kind of research the role of competitive advantage and strategic narratives and innovation and the 36 methods you spoke of become part of it. Uh, yeah. Why that topic so deeply into it? Um, so I got to do my doctorate in a school that was an old, old school in Finland. It's one of the oldest schools in Europe. And um, they still follow the, the old model like the, mm -hmm. the Oxford type of model, right? Where you have an advisor and you uh, write papers for the advisor and you meet with him or her, in my case, or her, and gives me feedback. So it gives me a lot of freedom. I don't have to fit it within a particular uh, track. Mm -hmm. um, so um, that allowed me to go deep into, into, into one track. And um, my, my thesis is really that innovation starts with a different thought mm -hmm. that there's a people are thinking of three things and someone says well what about this fourth thing so that question becomes well how do you come up with that thought um okay well what i i believe is that we think through language whether we are thinking with people and most of the time we're thinking with people we're talking and with water coolers and hallways and the language that we use changes our thinking but also the metaphors and the internal dialogue we use in thinking shapes our thinking. If mm -hmm. I tell you, if I point to a, to a, if I point to a chair and I call it firewood, mm -hmm. what you do with that chair is different. If I call it a chair, you're going to go sit on it. If I call it yeah. firewood, you're going to break it apart and burn it. Right. Yeah. So our language shapes our reality. It shapes our behavior. And mm -hmm. so then the question then becomes is, what kind of language then leads to the thought patterns that create the innovative idea? Mm -hmm. And um, what I wanted to do was to classify the language that we use into some kind of you know, framework. But okay. rather than come up with my own framework, I said, well, I've got this framework right here, a catalog that took a thousand years. And we've only been studying strategy yeah, for like 60 years. Mm -hmm. And this book captures a thousand years of strategic dialogue. It's almost like a oral history research project that lasted a thousand years. Name me a university that's been around a thousand years. And, you know, and, and so I said, let me take that catalog and use that to measure how people talk about strategy. So I basically took a set of companies that are performing well compared them to a set of companies, sister companies, if you will, same industry, same size, that are not doing as well. And I observed uh, through narrative analysis how each of them talk about their strategy to be able to see if the successful companies talk
talk differently, therefore mm-hmm. think differently, therefore act diff- differently, right? And mm-hmm. in, you know, in my research, I identified five different of these 36, five of them that are statistically, in, in a statistically significant level, uh, represent how people who are, companies are outperforming talk differently about their strategy. And therefore, that gives us insight into how they think differently. If that makes sense. It makes sense. And, uh, you know, further looking into your education and, you know, you're pretty high learned, I would say. You've done double undergrad, one in finance and mm-hmm. one in mechanical engineering. And mm-hmm. you've completed your MBA, one with Columbia and the other one, London Business School. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing MBA, but yeah. Yes. But, you know, you've, you've put in your heart and soul in education and even at that time people you know there was a lot of these conversations dropouts from colleges right and they became big like bill gates and the steve jobs of the world uh, and uh, even mark zuckerberg and all of them and today when you look at it some people go and do all of that or do go to an extent which you have done or some people just believe education sucks and I, I know more than what education can teach me. What's your perspective on that? And you've been a professor yourself uh, and you've mm-hmm. taught students also. So what's your perspective around that? Well, you know, I mean, for me, uh, education is like bicycling. I, I don't like to bicycle, but, you know, but there are okay. people I know. I have a friend who loves to bike and every day mm-hmm. he bikes two, three hours and, you know, and, um, and, and education for me is, is that way. It is my passion. I, if, if I could just spend every day just locked in a room with no windows and research something, learn something, and then write about it, then I would feel fulfilled. You know, I think that like we all have a purpose in life. Uh, most of us don't find it. I don't know that I found it, but I found something that feels a lot like it. And, um, you know, when you go into that zone where you're fully 100% focused and like uh, three hours goes by and it feels like five minutes and that is an indication from that, that, that maybe you're doing your thing. So for me, education has, uh, well, I wouldn't say never, but, you know, after, I, after college, mm-hmm. until college, education was about getting somewhere, getting a good grade to get a good degree to get a you know, good job. But after college, education wasn't about that for me. It was the intrinsic value or the intrinsic enjoyment of learning something. So, um, you know, that's that. So I, I, I wouldn't say pursue higher levels of education any more than I would say pursue being a great bicyclist or pursue being a great artist or, you know, but I would say like whatever it is, you know, pursue that thing for you. And you spoke about your purpose right now. Uh, and find your purpose. Uh, what's have you found your purpose? Yeah, and yeah. Things which you love. Yes. What's that? It's interesting. Yeah, I think that you know it's interesting because there's the intrinsic. Wow, I I just look back and I lost track of time and I really love doing that. There's that intrinsic like moment, um, mm-hmm. which I think is different than purpose. You know, purpose is like I'm having an impact and it's an impact that I care about. And for me. What my purpose is, is people loving what they do. I believe that the fact that Albert Einstein happened as a 
when he worked in a post office to discover that somehow he had a knack for and a passion for physics, like that changed things for humanity. And then I look at the next person that's working in the post office or wherever, you know, whatever they're doing, and um, and think. Um, so, so I want to correct that a little bit because I don't want to. I, I I just don't believe in kind of like hierarchies of, of 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 careers or things. You know, like they could be some super wealthy banker, right? But actually, mm-hmm. they weren't meant to be a banker. They were meant to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a scientist of some sort. You know, I I so I, I my my mission I and mean, something I'll never fully achieve is that like everyone finds that thing that they love to do and they do it or whatever they're doing, they find their love in it. Mm-hmm. No? So that's, my, that's my mission, my purpose. And, you know, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you've been on your own. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about our thinker. Uh, and the little I know about the company is uh, how do you... I believe you do not have like consultants who are full time. You work and you bring in staff, uh, depending upon the kind of program or the project you're focused on. Um, and uh, it's it, how how does that model work for you? How do you bring people to align mm-hmm. to what the philosophy of the company is, and how do you operate within that structure? Yeah, so um, we started off. Um, wanting to build a consulting firm, a traditional consulting firm, you know, with staff and offices and all that. And, um, you know, I came to realize is that it's, it's sort of an inefficient way to deliver uh, valuable knowledge mm-hmm. um, to have full-time people. And at least I, I, I chose not to, not to pursue it that way. So what we have is we have a methodology, we call it the outthinker process. And, um, you know, in my book, we convert it into kind of like a, a, a yeah, process and then we certify people in that process and they can do it on their own. Um, and we know that they can apply it so that if there's a consulting need, we can staff it with people who know the process. And then each of these people also have different expertises. You know, someone might be a a brand expert, someone might be a financer, someone might be really good at creating communications for and managing boards, you know? And so that way we have a larger pool of people to tap. But I, I think of it more as an ecosystem or platform of just you know, very um, passionate, smart strategists that are willing at times to follow this, this, this process. It's almost like an Uber model of consulting. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes. Right. You, yes. You basically fit the right person to the right need, and you yes. go ahead and write that. So how's that yes. working out? How's that working out? Yeah. You've been consulting it's... with some some of the largest companies, the logos which I see on your website. How's that yeah. working out? Yeah. No. It's it's I, I it's working well. Um, my ambition is not to scale it really quickly. So and and we're not scaling really quickly. We're very careful on who we um who we bring in. Um, but it's it's it, it, it's it's working well, and we also run a peer group of chief strategy officers, um, who are kind of like if you think about if we take the Uber analogy, mm-hmm. if the certified outthinkers are the drivers, the mm-hmm. um, uh, the 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 these these chief strategy officers are the customers, mm-hmm. but with them we try not to be uh, we try to be agnostic. 
So we bring them together. We have conversations. We bring them other thought leaders, other processes, and and often they ask for the Outthinker process, and we provide it. But we don't, you know, we don't we don't try to enroll them. We don't try to sign them up for the Uber app, if you will. Um, you know, we got the Uber app. We got the Seamless Web. We've got the you know whatever Amazon. You know, and and, and we've got the platform for them. Um, but I think that is the way of the future. I think that that is um, you know these kind of uh, two-sided, three-sided, multiple-sided platform models uh, just make a lot of sense uh, because so much of the value that you're delivering now is uh, tra tra traceable, measurable, and virtual. Hmm. Interesting. Now, talking a little bit about your own life, um, I have heard again in one of the TED Talks, you have th three children today and your family uh, is around you. So how does social circle and family really support what you're doing? Because, you know, leaving a consultant life is not easy. And, you know, driving a business which is around consulting is not easy. Four days in a plane or on the road, fifth day or mm -hmm. home. And mm -hmm. I'm sure writing books needs your own time, like the me time. How does family really help in that scenario? I mean, you know, it's, it's huge. I think that, you know, I, 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 will, I've, I married a woman who is super supportive of what I do, whatever I do. If I were to quit now and say, I want to be a gardener, she would support yeah. that. Um, she also has a really big job, a big executive job that is more demanding than mine and is more stressful, although she doesn't feel stressed. She can just brush anything off. But like she's dealing with tens, hundreds of millions of dollar decisions, you know? Uh, and so, um, so, 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 so it's, I, I don't want to create the, uh, the impression that, Hey, I'm the, I, you know, it, the, the family's like, you know, we, we, we all have our, our own passions and our own interests and things. Um, but, uh, I, shifting from consulting to speaking has been really good because instead of, as you say, flying out on Monday, coming back on Thursday. Mm -hmm. I fly out on Monday and I come back Tuesday. And okay. I go to Las Vegas, spend the night, give a one hour speech, then get on a plane and come back. And then I'm at home and I take my kids to school or pick and pick them up from school. And I work in my office and I do my research and my writing and preparing for my next speech. Uh, I can do all of that from here. I don't have to go into an office I don't have to put on a tie. I don't have to get on a plane. So this career, as I've designed it, works really well for spending time with my family. And, you know, I love, I love being with my kids. In the few years that I'm going to get to be with them, I want to spend as many of those days as I can with them. And these are the formidable years because you often miss them. You know, that if you had time, you would have done yep different things. Yep. And you spoke yeah. about an alternative path, being a gardener. Uh, mm -hmm. And let's talk about that. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's say if I give you a time machine and I say, Kahan, if you have a time machine, you can go back. You know what you've done in over the years. If that time machine allows you to relive your life and go back into the history and change it, would you change anything or would you relive the way you've lived it? I would certainly change things. And then I don't know if the outcome of me having changed things would lead to a better outcome or not. Because mm -hmm. you know, life is so complex that, you know, you think 
you know, the butterfly flaps its wings and it rains across the other side of the of earth. You know, we just don't understand all of the interconnections of things, but, you know, we can, we can uh, contemplate on it. So I don't have any regrets and I would certainly change things. And, um, you know, what I would mostly change in my, you know, advice I would give to other people is, um, it is great to do what you love, mm-hmm. but also know that doing what you love isn't always fun. Yeah. Artists, they go, they torture themselves, you know, to, to do the art, to, 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 to do art. And they, and, and they spend time learning the techniques of different mediums, uh, drawing different things to build like a martial artist. They perfect the, you know, the, the kick and the punch or whatever, and then they can improvise. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think I could have spent a few more years uh, doing the hard work, kind of perfecting the fundamentals of uh of what i do in order to um you know i could put put in more put put in you know my, my dues more you know and 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 recognize that as um a kind of suffering if you will that has a purpose if that makes sense mm. yeah. i mean look at any successful person can look back in their in in their life and there was a, a a period in their lives i don't know if it's like you know their 20s to 30s in that space where they just like just did really tough work to, um, you know, to, to master something. Yep. And there are many such stories and I've been decoding a lot of individuals and yes, those are those formidable years which shaped what they are today. And, uh, you know, yeah. they also yeah. say that there were, there are no regrets, but if they could have changed, they could have changed a few aspects of that. And you spoke yeah. about something, do what you love. I think, the love what you do is more apt in those scenarios because, mm. you know, as mm. you said, do what you love. There are certain things which you may not love as part of that. Uh, That's what right. You want to do, yeah. Right. That's right. And uh, yeah, so you in have the to moment, love what you do. Yeah. 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 Right. And and maybe that goes back to what we talk about, like purpose and um, being in the zone. Like maybe yeah. you're not in the zone. You're not enjoying it, but you love what the outcome is. You're working out, and it's. And it's painful and you're having trouble breathing and your muscles are sore, but you, you love that you are strengthening yourself. Um, right. Parents, you know, they, the parents are uh, surveyed to be less happy than couples who don't have kids. But I think that they're probably more fulfilled. Yeah. So um, I, uh, I think it's, it's important to be able to say, Hey, I may not be enjoying this right now, but I'm fulfilled. Perfect. And talking about fulfillment, uh, you, I'm sure you've been consulting and there are a lot of people who look up to you, people consult with you on their careers, companies, and many other things. But are there people whom you look up to, you consult, you discuss your strategy, your company? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. Men- men- yeah. Yeah. Like mentors. Yeah. There are people. Um, and um you know, I love I love this phrase. I've heard Tim Ferriss say it, but I don't know that it comes from him. It says, "You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with." Hmm. So I intentionally try to spend time with people who have aspects of a life that I want to achieve. And in my world, that's mostly thought leaders because that's kind of the vision that I have for myself. So um, through my work, I've gotten to know many successful thought leaders and spend time with them. Um, 
Uh, last week, I got to spend part of an afternoon with Renee Mauburn, the author mm-hmm. of Blue Ocean Strategy. Um, I'm pretty close to Rita McGrath, who's a Columbia professor, who's written uh, most recently Seeing Around Corners. Um, Rob Walcott is a professor and consultant and author in Kellogg Business School. Um, these are some of the people who I just like to spend time with, talk to. Um, be, be doing the, 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 the Outthinker Strategy Network, the, the peer group of strategists, it means that every month we bring in a thought leader and I get mm-hmm. to rub elbows with them. So um, those are some of the, the career people that, that, I, that I, I like to spend time with that I consider mentors. But I would say uh, maybe a couple of them are like ongoing mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of them are just people who come into my orbit for a little while, you know, and okay. then uh, and I may not see them again for a long time. And how would you sum up or are there favorite moments in the journey which you've had, uh, which if you look back and say, yes, that's what drives me and some sense of fulfillment that, you know, that's that kind of feedback or that kind of moment really you cherish today also. Yeah. You know, I, I think that like any human, if you do something enough and you have some natural aptitude to it, you can get really good at it. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there are a few things that I am really good at. And I don't say it because other people aren't better at it. Other people can't get as good as I am about it. It's just that instead of uh, gardening, instead of fishing, instead of biking, instead of whatever, I was doing this thing, right? So, you know, yeah. but I, I think... Um, um, I'm very good at taking lots of seemingly disparate pieces of information and putting it together in a framework. Mm-hmm. And related to that, I think I'm good at managing a conversation. And so like one of my highlights was I got to be on the UN floor in New York for seven mm-hmm. hours. I was standing at the front of the stage, managing a conversation with 300 CEOs of mid-sized companies uh, on how they can unify to support the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And then that all culminated in a document that they signed. And I don't know that anyone even remembers me being there because I really was kind of more creating the space than than leading it. But I felt like at that moment, because by then I had facilitated 300 or 400 strategic dialogues, right? Um, I think by then I, I, I was, I, it, you know, I felt good about that. I could sense where the conversation was going, where it was going to go off and just put little nudges to keep it on, to keep people engaged and, and give it a sense of possibility. Um, you know, so that's one of the things I think certainly anytime I publish a book, the first copy I get is always like a great, a great experience. Um, and there've been many, many times where suddenly like if a framework comes together, like my my framework for outthink the competition is I D E A S ideas. My framework mm-hmm. for um, um, uh, driving innovation from within is innovate with one N I N O V A T E. So I have these. Each of those letters represents a concept, and mm-hmm. I need to put it in the right sequence and figure out how to name it something so that it can be memorable um, as an acronym. And that those moments when oh wow I can change the 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 V and in innovate. I mean, it's not a V yet. It is a um, a B. And mm-hmm. how do I? I can't have innovate. 
And then I figure, you know what? If I frame it this way, it becomes a V and now becomes innovate. And it's like, ah, you know? Anyway, I, I, wow. I, I think I left too, too long an answer, but maybe, No, maybe, no, maybe no. Long. I think I could see that passion and I could see that you're cherishing it. So definitely, um, and, you know, that thought is there in your mind. So uh, we are almost on top of our hour, but, you know, if you have to leave a thought for the listeners who are listening into the show, you know, what would that thought be? Well, I think that we are all kind of like combination locks. Okay. And when the combination lines up, it opens up something, you know, but there are lots of combinations. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think it's really helpful to, on both ends, explore lots of, try lots of letters, right? Lots of numbers, right? Again, tr- okay. try acting, try dancing, try art, try uh banking, try legal, try accounting, try whatever, right? Um, but also uh, on the other side, get in touch with your passion and look for your passion in all those things. And therefore you maximize your chance of finding that magic combination that unlocks possibility and passion and fulfillment, self-expression, you know? Beautiful. I mean, the unlocking combination is such an amazing thought. I, 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 it's never come to me, but that's amazing. Kahan, thank you. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Uh, and thank you for taking time out from your busy schedule. I hope I didn't disturb during your book writing time. Uh, no, but it's, no, this is great. Thank you for including me and, and really uh, thank you for the work that you do. You're welcome. Thank you for listening in. And we close yet another episode of Master's Decoded. If you've enjoyed the episode, please, you can help us out by sharing it on social media. I would personally appreciate that. It's how we can reach more listeners, and the more listeners we have, the more awesome guests I can get in touch and convince to participate in these conversations. That are a joy to have for me, and I hope they are a joy for you to listen as well. You can also help a lot leaving reviews on iTunes or your podcast service of choice. Reviews are surprisingly helpful in supporting the podcast to get to more listeners. If this episode has intrigued you, I would request you to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date and get notified to the future episodes. With that, I bid you and see you in the next episode.